0: So we're continuing this theme, we're calling Rise. We're calling it Rise because we think it's something that it's a movement of Jesus that expanded beyond his time here on earth that moved through his people, the people that believed on him, the early church launched. In many ways, we're exploring the beginning portion of the book of Acts. And what I'd like us to kind of hone in on, what I'm going to attempt to uh, focus our time toward is this idea that what we're going to see is life gives us plenty of opportunities to decide something. It gives us opportunities to decide if this faith of ours is actually an undeniable part of us or not. That we are given opportunities in life, whether it's pressure or it's trial or it's whatever it might be, those circumstances, they happen in our lives. And one of the things that is put on display is, how central is this faith of ours to who we are another way of saying it is is this a truest the truest part of us or is this more on the periphery of our lives that is one of the many things that comes out when we're walking through challenging situations and we have to know this we have to know this on the front end that if we've invited Jesus into our lives some of us we may be exploring and that's fantastic But if the moment we've invited him into our lives, we have to know that his desire is to become the truest part of who we are. That his love for us is something he he basically, he says, I want you to know this is undeniable. This is core to who you are. But he never forces us to decide. He invites us to. And the pressures of life will give us plenty of opportunity to do that. I, growing up, remember having a bit of an identity crisis at the ripe old age of nine years old. (laughs) My parents had just purchased their home in South San Francisco, which meant that I got to start that fall at a new school in a new neighborhood with people I hadn't met, and I was looking forward to making new friends. And I remember that fall, walking into my fourth grade class, Mrs. Holloran was my teacher. And I remember... Coming to terms with something, something that hadn't happened before for whatever reason, I, 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 I didn't know anyone, I was looking forward to meeting people, but I remember entering that classroom with a distinct feeling that I was different. And maybe it was connected to the fact that we had just taken a trip to where my parents were from, my first trip to El Salvador and our entire time there, it was, it's a beautiful place in Central America, it's tropical, food is delicious, people are wonderful, but one of the things that happened with my extended family is that they would jokingly start, they called me the entire time I was there, jokingly, el gringo. <laughs> Which basically means not Salvadorian. <laughs> That's the American. And I remember, I remember kind of laughing with them at me, uh, enjoying kind of just the camaraderie and everything. But that, I remember, even though they were joking, I remember feeling like, oh, I'm not Salvadoran. They are. And so if they say I'm not, I must not be. And so I remember going into this classroom and sitting there, and, you know, they do roll call at the beginning. And so my teacher started saying people's names, and then when she got to my name, (laughs) she tried to say my name in Spanish. Except it didn't sound like Spanish it sounded like someone trying to speak Spanish, which I appreciated, but it wasn't Spanish. And so my name didn't sound like my name. And I remember in that moment, coming to, 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 to this point in which I, I thought, you know what, I, I, I'm in a new environment. I'm in a new school. People don't know me. And I remember making a decision. I'm going to decide who I am. And so at recess time, I made my way up to Miss Holleran, and I had decided within myself, I'm not Salvadorian, I'm American. And so I'm going to ask her to, to to pronounce my name in English. And so I said, Mrs. Hollerin, my name is actually Lewis, (laughs) not Luis. Because in my head I thought, you can't say that. You don't know how yet, it's okay. You tried, but go with Lewis. You could still spell it Luis, but just say Lewis. And I remember her saying, oh, okay, okay, sounds good. And from that moment forward, That is how most people have called me, except those who are deeply passionate about reminding me that my name is Luis. (laughs) Or my parents, who named me, letting me know that's not, they didn't name me Luis. And I've had this, you know, this has been part of now who I am. And I have to say, I I remember making that decision. I remember being in that point. I remember to this day uh, feeling something of a struggle back then. Because the reality is, the truth of the matter is, I'm actually both. Uh, The beauty of this country, the beauty of the city, is that it is possible in a country such as ours, made up of immigrants, there are parts of me that are undeniably Salvadorian. And then there are parts of me that are undeniably American. But in my, in my young nine years of age, I remember feeling something of an outsider, something of an other in both places, in the place of my, my parents' origin and in the place of my own origin. And I remember feeling that tension. I'm neither. I'm an outsider in both. And though I didn't know it back then, what I was actually being confronted with was my first up-close encounter with shame. And in that shame, I remember I decided to respond in the best way possible, I want to fit in. I want to be accepted. I don't wanna be different. I don't wanna be an outsider. And I remember from that moment, that, that solidified within me. And here's the thing, I'm not the first one who struggled with their name. People have actually legally changed it to something completely different this sense of struggling with who we are, on the other hand, I can assure you, some of you may never have known that struggle, and man, that's awesome. But I can tell you this, if we've lived to any extent of time on this earth, we've had to wrestle with what is undeniable about us. We've had to. And we've had to come to terms with, what parts of me are the truest parts? that there is no denying. Here's the thing about that wrestling match. Shame will tell us that the worst parts of us, the embarrassing, the outsider, the rejected, the weird parts are what are undeniable. They'll whisper in our soul and they'll say, you will never run away from this. This is who you are. Shame. It has its origins in many places. It could be Coming from a sense of being other, a sense of never being good enough, of being pressured to conform to something we know we're not. It could be coming out of insecurity for what we're up against, not knowing if we're able to overcome it. It could feel like defeat from the circumstances we're in. It could feel like weakness and not wanting to declare it or acknowledge it. But shame will say all of those things are who you are. And you should be embarrassed. And you should hide it. And you should deny it. Um, but Jesus, well, Jesus tells us his love for us and his courage for us and his power in our lives, his presence, his assurance, his commitment is what is undeniable. And he invites us because of this very real human condition. He will invite us and he will allow different circumstances in our lives to press us and to position us into a place where we must decide what is truest, what is undeniable. Is it what Jesus says, or is it my shame? (laughs) This is why, for me, this account that we've been exploring here, and we're going to continue to explore between Peter and John and the religious political leaders of their day is so powerful, so relevant. It's different. It's unlike anything we probably will ever experience, but it put them in a place where they needed to decide. They needed to decide where their faith stood in their own lives. And I think it has so much for us. In fact, if you open up your handout, I'd love to explore just this account written by Luke in the fourth chapter of Acts and we're told in verse 13, it says, Now they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now who is the they? Now they, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they actually was a group, a body of political leaders made up of two different segments that were given authority by Rome to oversee Israel. They were known as the Sanhedrin. And they were the ones who had the, the power and the authority to judge things within their own people, to decide who was in, who was out, who was acceptable, who was not. Not only that, they had a religious element that decided what is God what is not. What is okay, what is not. What is good, what is wrong. And so they had extraordinary uh, access to resources, and the capacity to enforce this power. And so when they, what they were trying to do was they were pressing Peter and John, which, by the way, Pastor Terry gave us just a, a great word a week ago that really, in many ways, set the stage for what we're about to experience. If we weren't here, I just encourage you to go take a look and listen. But this group of people were wanting Peter and John who had now... Seen a man healed because they called him to rise up in Jesus' name. They wanted to snuff them out. In other words, silence them. And so they pressed them and intimidated them. And they pressed them to declare, basically, you need to declare that this was God's doing and no one else. And Peter put in a, on, the, on the spotlight. He decided to boldly declare, no, this was actually, yes, it was God. But It was his son, Jesus, who did it. And he did it in such a forceful, respectful, convicted way, filled with true authenticity that we're told in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived, wait a minute, these men are not educated. They don't have pedigree. They don't have position. They're not extraordinarily wealthy. They don't have access to power. And yet, they're common men. And they, because of this, were astonished. And what do they conclude? They come to the conclusion, we're told, that they recognize the only thing that can explain this, these fishermen speaking to us this way, is that they had been with Jesus because that's who they sound like that's who they remind us of that's how they are postured and they may not know it but they had just given them the most incredible compliment ever possible to give they were with Jesus and that's where their power is coming from it's that's the only way seeing verse 14 the man who was healed standing beside them they had nothing to say in opposition These political, shrewd men that had everything on their side had nothing to say in opposition. The ones who wanted to silence them were silenced. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? What are we going to do with them? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Israel, to, of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It's undeniable. And this thing is spreading. It's not just contained here. Everybody is hearing about it. You see, you see, it's like wildfire. And now that Peter controversially declared Jesus was the one who did it, oh, there is enormous interest. What are we going to do about this? It, you, you sense that they... They desire to quell this, to calm it down, to move it to the margins, to remove it from center stage. And then what do they do? They conclude, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Which is, to me, it's remarkable. They were reduced to a request. Um... They, they were reduced to a point of saying, let us uh, warn them. If it began by them basically intimidating and pressing in and putting on the line every single point of power that they had to threaten Peter and John with what? Well, to be outcasted by the Sanhedrin is to, be, to lose your place in society. Access to relationships, well, way of being, networks. It'd be to become a pariah. All of a sudden, they, because of Peter's conviction and because of the evidence in front of them, they could not deny in the healed man. What that, all of that swings around, and what does it become? A warning. (laughs) It's, It's truly. A remarkable account. We're told in verse 18 so they called them and charged them. They called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. That word charge is like, uh, it's the equivalent of an order. And basically, what they're saying is, we order you to stop, stop talking about Jesus. Stop it. You can't talk about him. You can't teach anything about them. You need to, this is going out of control and you're responsible and you're the one who needs to bring it to an end because through your lips, this is happening. So stop. And it's meant to strike fear. It's meant to intimidate. It's meant to, in many ways, uh, flex their power and move their weight around. And normally, they are accustomed to that alone being enough to cause somebody to line up. Who who of us wouldn't want to remove ourselves from having such opposition? And yet, why were they responding in such an aggravated manner Why were they threatening? It's interesting to me. The most powerful people in the land were putting on display their insecurity and anxiety and fear. It's been said, those who are the strongest attackers actually are the most afraid. And those who seek to intimidate are internally gravely intimidated. And it is not actually a display of strength, but one of internal weakness. And yet, they are threatened by what? They're threatened by authentic faith. They don't know how else to stop it. It, It's an amazing thing. It seems that no amount of resource or position or title or education was able to outmatch Peter and John's bold faith. And all of a sudden, conviction rattled them. They thought they were the impenetrable force that would get their way. And two men with a man who was healed in Jesus' name caused this body to tremble. You see it? And what do they do? They ask. They request will you please stop not please, but we charge you to no longer speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter Peter in his remarkable way here, Peter and John answered them together in unison, whether it is right in the sight of God, in verse 19, to listen to you rather than to God you must judge. You got to make that call. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're asking. I know what you're, look, it's almost as if they, the, they, they were put in a position where they had to um, decide who would they align themselves with, those opposing Jesus or what they had known and seen with their own eyes of what Jesus had done. And it seems Peter and John decided in, in some ways, another way of saying it is they basically said, I can't betray my conscience. And I can't betray what I know is right. I can't do it. Now, you decide if that's right or wrong. But in me, I've seen it and I've heard it and I've experienced it. And I can't deny it. You're asking me to do something. I'm incapable. I, I won't. It's almost as if, listen, they had to decide where will their power come from? Aligning themselves with the ones who held everything in front of them? Or aligning themselves with their sense of integrity and conviction. And they made the call to align themselves with this body of governing authorities would allow them to remain part of the society's fold. And it would quell everything, and they would be all right. Their well-being would not be threatened at all. But in their minds, you see it. Their conclusion was to do that would actually abandon our true source of strength. No, we can't do that. And so it may mean rejection, but I can't abandon the base, the source of power I have. No, I can't do that. And this display of courage ends up moving beyond those four walls in which they stood And we're told in verse 21 that when they had further threatened them, which you almost get the sense, even the way Luke writes it, it's almost like threats falling on deaf ears, water off a duck's back. It's an amazing, amazing account. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. We can't physically intimidate them. Why? Because of the people. For all we're praising God for, what had happened. It's undeniable there's no way to actually intimidate these people. So they let them go. In verse 22, the man on whom this sign sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. It's just one of those remarkable events in church history, in human history, that in many ways puts on display, listen, it demonstrates the power of authentic faith in action. It really does. What conviction can do and how it's able to overmatch every other point of leverage. On account, listen, it's an account that shows one way that things turn out. It's not an account that shows how every one of these encounters might go. But it is real faith. It is. And it demonstrates something. Now, what I would like to do in our time here, because this is, is so... I would say head and shoulders above anything we might be used to. To see Peter step into this moment with John, it's an amazing, inspiring thing. And it sometimes might even feel out of reach for the circumstances we might be in and where we're probably living and walking. But I can tell you this, I, I wanna put a couple things on the board that I think we must know in order to be able to truly understand what is going on here. I want to suggest a couple of things. One, I want to suggest that our faith, listen, our faith becomes undeniable when we know he will not deny his love for us. We have to know this. See, it's an inspiring story, an account, an example of tremendous courage, no doubt. But we need to know that before Peter refused to cower in front of the most powerful people in his land, the leaders, we need to know this. Before he refused to cower in front of them, he cowered in the presence of a little girl asking him if he knew Jesus. On a night in which Jesus was inside being interrogated by a fire, a little girl comes to him and through her lips, an accusation formed in form of a question, says, aren't you one of them? And he, in that moment, crumbled. And Peter denied it. I don't know, I don't know. No, I don't know him. And it would be not one, but two more, three times that people would question him. Aren't you one of them? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? Or do you deny it? And three times he denied it. And at the sound of the the rooster's voice, it came to him what he had just done. Betrayed everything he had claimed. Let down the one who had loved him and he had loved. And it says that he bitterly, tearfully ran into the night. And I'll I'll tell you, that moment, that moment threatened to define him to the core. That moment of shame, that moment of failure and weakness, it would be the final moment in Peter's faith journey. But for Jesus. Because what a fair expectation would be is that if Jesus were to return, he would not return in any other way except to say what we would expect you denied me, you betrayed my trust, we're done. We're done, I can't do this. You let me down. I never let you down, but you let me down. And because of that, I, we'll be amicable. But there's, don't eat the depth, it's not happening. And yet, what did Jesus do? You know, Jesus stepped into his moment. And he restored him. And he spoke affirmation into him. And he reassigned him. And then he asked Peter to affirm his love for Jesus. And it was one of the moments in which, the, the only way I can put it is, Peter became clearly convinced that Jesus would never abandon or forsaken him. He would never deny his love for Peter. It was a moment that transformed him. And it turned him from the man who cowered in the presence of a little girl to the man who stood in front of the most powerful body of people. It is something, it was a moment that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Peter knew Jesus loved him. And some of us, if we hear nothing else today, We need to know this. We need to discover the permanency of his love for us. The permanency of it. We need to know, listen, it's not love the way we hear it in songs or in poetry or in examples of literature. It's not love that we see in films or in shows. It is love that is ultimately defined by commitment. He loves us. He loves us in more ways than we could ever fathom. He will never leave nor forsake us. He is committed to us. In the moment we open our lives up to him, he is never wavering in his passionate pursuit of who we are and what is best for us. We need to know this. We need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Listen, he... he He knows our worst. He knows our best. He knows the deepest secrets of what we're ashamed of. He he knows the things that we're embarrassed by, the broken areas, the dark areas, the depressing areas. He knows the things we wish had never happened to us. And he knows the things we wish we had never stepped into. He knows it all. He knows it all, and he loves us. His posture toward us is of permanent love. He's far kinder and gentler than we could ever imagine. He is more patient and true than we could ever hope. He does not condemn us. He comes to us as one who seeks to love. And and what we need to know this is that when we receive his love, what we are actually receiving is the most powerful force that exists. There's nothing more powerful there's nothing than the love of God displayed through Jesus. Everything pales in comparison. There's not one person that could ever match, not even close. And the sense of security that arises when we actually acknowledge and receive what he longs to give us, uh, is transforming. In fact, John, who was standing next to Peter, years later would write to those he loved that he invested into. And he wrote these words. I asked him to put this up there in 1 John. He says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. That is life extending beyond life here on earth. But here's the thing. That's not the beginning of life. No, the beginning of life is here on earth. This is real life, he says, real love. Not that we loved God. Not one of us, not one of us can claim that we were the first ones to love him. See, some of us, we might think, gosh, you know what? I'm so happy. I'm the one who turned toward him. And what we have to understand is no, no, no. What we've done is we've started to discover that he's been turning toward us more and more and more and far longer than we've ever known. He's been in pursuit of us far before we've ever even known he's existed. And he steps into our lives. He says, Listen, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. He, that is to say that there are things like shame and guilt and weaknesses and brokenness and darkness that might threaten to separate us. But you have to understand what Jesus did washes that away and it bridges the gap and it creates an enormous sense of confidence. Such love, in verse 18, he says, Listen, such love, it has no fear. Because perfect love expels it. It's like light in the dark. It's just natural. Then when we actually receive this, listen, if we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. We're not seeing things clearly. And then this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Will we ever perfectly experience it? No. Will that grow? Yes. Yes. Will we move from a stage in life where we think the circumstances in my life are actually signs of whether or not God is happy with me to a place where we recognize, no, actually what I'm discovering is that he loves me, period. He loves me when I'm doing well and he loves me when I'm not doing well. He loves me when I'm on the mountaintop. He loves me the next week or the next day when I'm in a valley and discouraged and feeling sorrowful. He loves me and he is there. Period. He loves me when everything is going my way and he loves me when all the circumstances seem to be set against me. He loves me. When we grow in that sense, knowing truly there is no circumstance that we could ever point to and say, "That, that means you don't love me, God. There is no circumstance we could ever do that. Why? Because Jesus put it all on the line all of it for us. And he didn't just go back to Peter and restore his position and his role and his value and his affirmation and his love. No, he does that to all of us. Yeah, because we've all had our dark hour by the fire. And I'll tell you what, Jesus doesn't want that hour to be the final hour that defines us? No. He says no, you know, because here's the thing. If that hour said something about Peter, when he denied Jesus, Jesus put him in a different hour that Peter discovered something extraordinary about Jesus and himself. Here's the thing. I want to put this up there. Undeniable faith, it produces courage. And when we start to truly soak in and rest in the permanency of his commitment to us, courage, that is the soil by which courage grows. That's where it flows. That is its origin. It's an interesting thing, courage. Presupposes the need for it. It Presupposes we have real fears we're experiencing. Uh, Peter understood what the stakes were, no question about it. He was well aware of how much power these men had. They were the ones who crucified Jesus weeks before. It's no question he understood what was going on. However, it seems Peter, listen, had gotten himself to a place because of his life-transforming, altering moment with Jesus where he decided to change from a man who ran from fear to one who embraced it who no longer ignored it or denied it, and neither allowed it to overcome him. It seems faith, listen, it's not something that will shield us from fear. It's not. It's not something that will shield us. No, it's, it's the means by which we walk into it and through it. It, it, it does not promise to protect us from danger It doesn't promise to protect us from sorrow or pain or unfair circumstances. It gives us the strength to walk through them and into them. And while we're walking through them, if we truly say this is an undeniable part of who I am, Jesus, what he's done in my life, I cannot deny. You know what happens is that we walk through these moments, these pressure points, these circumstances, and we don't end up harming others in the midst of it. And we don't end up harming ourselves in the midst of it. And we don't end up coming out damaged more than we began. We end up coming on the other side stronger, more capable, filled with a higher degree of integrity and wholeness. Because if Peter failed, you better believe shame said something about Peter on that night. And I don't think it was any coincidence that his life was orchestrated in such a way that he cowered in the midst of a little girl, but yet he prevailed in the midst of the most powerful body in his land. If that says something about him, Jesus positioned him in such a way where Peter would once again have to confront the very same situation. And that would say something extraordinary about who Jesus was. Because with Jesus, Peter found courage he had never, ever tasted before. And he, he you better believe that says something about him. And it says something about God. Courage is what we need. Courage is what we need most. We need to be able to have the courage to face our shadow, to face our darkness, to be able to declare our need, to not back away from our convictions, to 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 not buckle under pressure. Courage is what we need to not quit. To not turn away, courage is what keeps us when insecurity props itself up. To not turn away from the goodness of God. To remain in the challenging place and to move forward one step at a time. We do that, one step at a time. Bound by his love, strengthened by his courage within us. You know what happens? We will discover that undeniable faith causes faith to rise. It causes it to rise. Where, within us? Yes, absolutely, but you know and who else? Everyone around us Look at what verse 21 says, and they had further threatened them, and they let them go, finding no way to punish him. Why? Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Do you understand what this is saying? This is basically saying all those people who were surrounding the temple, who were around Jerusalem, who had heard of what had happened, they weren't the ones put on display. They weren't the ones who experienced the healing. They weren't the ones who ended up stepping into moments of courage. No, they weren't that. They were on the periphery. They were the ones watching, listening, paying attention, and what happened happened to them? Their faith rose. Why? Because Peter and John decided to step into the moment and not relent and not buckle. (laughs) This is an, what are we talking about? We're talking about authentic faith. Real. Real, which I know it's in vogue. I know it's in vogue with everything that may not be real all over social media and all the capacities we have to make the perfect picture. And to feel like we have to put on display the perfect image. But the reality of the matter is there are people who are watching us that we can't fake it with. There's no way. And those are the people, whether it be our neighbors, or it be our coworkers, or it be our close friends, or it be the key people in our lives. Listen, what they are watching for is, is this faith truly undeniable to them? Not are they perfect? None of us are. Not are they always up? Not are they saying the exact right thing every single moment? No, what they're looking for is is this real? And when we authentically say, this is an undeniable part of me. There's no way I could deny what he has done in my life. You know what? Those people who are watching us, they will see us. They will, they will watch us walk through the highs and the lows. They will watch us struggle. They will watch us say, I'm being real and honest. But you know what? He is with me, and he holds me, and he anchors me, and he strengthens me. And over time, we will, dis- we will, we will discover That those who watch us, those who we may know, those whom we may not know, but they know us, those who trust us, they're not looking for perfect people. They're looking for something that is real and true. And the truest part of us, if it is Jesus, God will use our lives as broken and weak and contradictory as they may be, and he will shine his light in such a way, we will see it. And people around us will say, Adam, I know you. I want to know the one who holds you. I want to know the one who sustains you. I want to know who the one who has uh, impacted your heart as I've walked, watched you. I want to know that person. They may not ever say it to us, but they'll certainly think it. And they'll definitely crave it. I've had several occasions now where I've had the privilege of being in a room where someone is being spoken about. And they, they, it might be in the context of remembering somebody. And I'll tell you what, when people share about somebody else's life, they those that I have witnessed, it's, it's amazing, it's inspiring. What they always come back to is some version of, yeah, they had their quirks, yeah, they had all kinds of other things, but I'll tell you what was so true about them is who Jesus was in their lives. That's the most inspiring thing to me Their undeniable faith, it was real. It kept them, it strengthened them, it caused them to become different people, generous people, loving people, courageous people, strong people, people who never relented. That was the best part of who they were. Their faith. It was beautiful. And I just think there are people in our lives, we may not know it, but there will be decades, years from now, that, They will say, I I knew them, all their stuff. But man, Jesus really did something in their lives. It's undeniable. And their own faith will rise. May that be the case. As we receive our time of giving and have a closing song, I'd love to just pray and ask you, Lord, thank you, firstly the fact that you come to us, you come to us longing to strengthen and to empower us and to give us the capacity to be able to anchor ourselves in your love and to have the courage to move forward with you and then to have the privilege of being used by you. We pray for this to be the case as you continue to do your good work in our hearts, in our soul. We pray for your life-giving spirit to arise. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.